0: and sisters, please open up in your copy of God's Word this morning to the first chapter of Galatians. And as you are doing so, please stand, as is our custom, for the reading of God's Holy Word. A couple of weeks ago, you may recall, we began a new sermon series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And so we find ourselves this morning picking it up in verse 6. And I'm going to read in your hearing Galatians 1, verses 6 through 10. Let us give our attention now to the word of the Lord. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And thus ends this reading of God's holy inspired and inerrant word. Brothers and sisters, please take your seats. As the saying goes, desperate times call for desperate measures. And that was certainly the case in Galatia. This is why the apostle Paul nearly erupts right here at the front end of this letter. If you are familiar with the New Testament, and particularly with the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in the New Testament, you will recognize immediately that Paul's other letters, well, they are quite a bit more gentle. You will know at the front end of Paul's letters that there is a discussion of how he loves the church. How he's praying for the church. And he'll, he'll often make mention of some evidence of grace in their lives. And, and he will celebrate that. The, the point is, the beginning of Paul's letters to the churches, they're all so very encouraging. Not here. Not in Galatians. It is straight to business. It is like a father who is having to leave work early and come home to discipline the children. So Paul, at the front end, takes his belt off and he gets right to work. And if you were to ask why, why is it that dad had to come home from work early? Why is it that Paul is so agitated even now at the front end of this letter? The answer is actually quite simple. And that is this, the gospel is being maligned. The very essence of the gospel, Christ and His cross, His death and His resurrection, the way that God saves sinners, it is all being not so subtly jeopardized. And it's all being jeopardized. It all revolves around a pseudo gospel. And I want you to notice Paul's reaction to it. He is, in verse 6, astonished as he hears about these churches and their moving away from Christ and the utter sufficiency of his death on their behalf. How does Paul respond to it? He is shocked. He is overcome with frustration and disappointment. After all, the pure and unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ was preached to them. They responded to that gospel by professing faith in Christ. They turned from their sins. They were baptized. Churches were planted. It was all an occasion for great joy. But now, it would seem that the apple is full of worms. If that wasn't bad enough, this whole thing has happened rather quickly. If you keep on in verse 6, the apostle says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the gospel. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all of the details this morning, but when you look at the book of Acts and Paul's first missionary journey, the one in which the churches in Galatia were planted, and then you look at the timing of this letter, in other words, when these churches were planted in the book of Acts and when Galatians was written, you want to know how much time has passed? Less than a year. Less than a year. Last summer, the gospel had taken root in the lives of these individuals, and these healthy churches are growing and thriving. But now, by springtime, cancer has spread throughout these once healthy churches. And I want to be clear, I don't use that language, cancer, lightly. You can get a glimpse of how lethal this all is by taking note of some of the language that Paul uses himself. He says in verse 6 again, I am astonished that you are so quickly, here it is, deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. See that language of of deserting? That language of of turning? These are traitors. Traitors. These are turncoats. They've changed their mind. They've shifted their allegiances. It would be like a Red Sox fan putting on a Yankee cap. You just don't do that. They've switched sides. They've switched sides so much that no longer is the plea, Christ is enough. Now, their creed is something like, Christ plus something. And beloved, here's what can't be missed. Here's the bell that is going to be constantly rung throughout Paul's letter to the Galatians. To turn from the gospel is to turn from life to death. And that's why this letter begins So rough. That's why it's so abrupt. That's why it's so sharp. That's why it cuts so deep. Because what is happening in Galatia is not a a small little kerfuffle over secondary issues. What is at stake, in fact, is the very heart of the gospel. So you have two options either, on the one hand, Christ has shed his blood. He has forgiven you all of your sin. He has clothed you with His righteousness. He's fitted you for heaven, and He has guaranteed your resurrection unto life. That's one option. Or, you'd better get to work and do all that yourself. Those are really the only two options. You either have Christ and grace and gospel and life, or you have yourself and your works and death. Paul alludes to this in verse 6 when he tells the Galatians that they are deserting him who called you they're not just turning from the message, but they're turning from the source of the message. They're turning from God Himself. By deserting the gospel, they have deserted God. No longer, no longer is, verse 6, the grace of Christ. No longer is the grace of Christ enough. This group of people, they've come to want more. They have a craving for something else. They have an itch that Jesus and Jesus alone will not scratch. So they turn from God. They turn from grace. They turn from Christ. Brothers and sisters, they have turned from life. But it's important to emphasize that they are turning, they have not all the way turned yet. In other words, while the Galatians are showing signs of apostasy, they have not yet gone all in. Which is why the Apostle Paul will leverage every resource he has to plead with these churches. Like a man hanging over the balcony of a high-rise building, contemplating suicide. So the Galatians are waffling between spiritual life and spiritual death. They are waffling between Christ and Christ alone as they're standing before God and Christ plus what they do themselves as they're standing before God. Which is why, again, desperate times call for desperate measures. Perhaps we could frame it this way. Paul desperately wants these churches in Galatia to see that not all that glitters is gold. To use the language at the end of verse 6, this, in fact, is a different gospel. And because it is a different gospel, it is actually no gospel at all. Beloved, we must see and believe and understand and recognize this is not merely a difference of opinion or emphases. This isn't a debate between Baptists and Presbyterians, those who are brothers in the faith. This is not apples and oranges. It is more like apples and Buicks. And so Paul is pressing upon the minds of his hearers in verse 7. He says, not that there is another one. There is no other gospel other than the true gospel. And it is only the true gospel that is the cure to your sin problem. Every other false gospel is a placebo. Not only does verse 7 reveal that not all that glitters is gold, it also gives us something of a glimpse into the false teachers and what they were all about. We are told in the middle of verse 7, but there are some who trouble you. And what do they want to do but to distort the gospel of Christ? So to use Jesus' language, here are wolves in sheep's clothing. And what are they doing? Uh, Two tragedies. They are disturbing and distorting. They are disturbing and distorting. I'm calling this false gospel disturbing because the Greek verb that is used there, translated by the ESV as trouble you, it means to cause inward turmoil. We might say that these false teachers and their false gospels, they were doing more than simply confusing the churches, though they were certainly doing that. They were actually frightening them out of their wits, intimidating them with the threat of damnation. I wonder if you can begin to feel something of the pressure that these poor churches in Galatia were under. On the one hand, you have Paul and his gospel, and this is a gospel that is of free grace. It is grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul's Gospel says that all of Christ's righteousness is credited to the believer by grace alone through faith alone. So that when God looks at the Christian, what he sees is the righteousness of Christ. Full stop. Christ is enough. All the righteousness that you will ever need to stand before God on Judgment Day and to stand before God today is found in Christ and you get all of it by grace. That's Paul's gospel. On the other hand, you've got this pseudo-gospel. And it too is one of grace, but it is not free grace. And this... Galatian gospel, it too has something to do with Christ, who He is, and what He has done. But ultimately, your standing on the last day before the judgment seat of God, whether or not you pass or fail, will depend not solely upon Christ, but upon you. Have you been circumcised? Have you checked all the right boxes? Have you done all your due diligence? You see, if you were to back up and ask, "Well, why does Paul come out of the gate with both barrels here? It's because souls are hanging in the balance. Because there is no middle ground. Either you will trust Christ and Christ alone for your standing before God, or you will trust Christ and you for your standing before God. One of those promises life. The other brings only death. But again, this gospel, this other gospel, is no gospel at all. The reason the false teachers are disturbing so many is because they are, end of verse 7 now, distorting the gospel of Christ no matter how persuasive their speech, no matter how sound their arguments, no matter how pious they may appear, at the end of the day, and at the beginning of the day, they are proclaiming a false gospel. From their pulpits, you would hear this. Christ is not enough. Faith alone is not enough. You must improve. You must do better. You must try harder. Now, granted, they wouldn't say it quite that way. They wouldn't be that direct. It's hard to fill a room and get enough tithes when you browbeat people like that. In all probability, it probably sounded more like this. To really please God, you need to up the ante And really do better in your personal devotions. To really show your commitment and and to be part of the team. You need need to be circumcised. That's how you know that God will really accept you. They would say, Christ is good. But now, if you really want to grow, if if you're you're ready to advance and to move on and, and to really be a super Christian. Th- then you need to submit to the Mosaic ordinances. They would say, if you, if you do all of these things, if you, if you really try your best, if, if you give it all that you have, then you can be assured that your sins are truly forgiven and that when you die, you will go to heaven. Now, I would just ask you, redeeming grace... Is that really all that different from what we hear from so many pulpits today, even ostensibly Christian pulpits? I will grant you, sure, I don't, I don't think you're going to find anybody in the Tri-Cities uh, telling you like they were in Galatia that you need to be circumcised if, if you want to have a right standing before God. But it is equally true that we encounter many modern pseudo-gospels. And so in no particular order, here are some of the more popular. To begin with, and this is all the rage, you have the so-called prosperity gospel. This imposter treats Christ as if he were a vending machine where if you say the right thing, or sow your seed, or have enough faith, then you can actually be assured of health and wealth in this life. To be blunt, this pseudo-gospel prostitutes Christ on the altar of our own wants and desires. It's no gospel at all. Then you have the religious gospel. What this counterfeit does is it causes people to look to their own baptism, to their own church attendance, to their own tithes record, to their own denomination. It it causes them to look to religious things as the basis for their standing before God, as opposed to Christ and his righteousness as the basis. They're standing before God. Another pseudo gospel is the intellectual gospel. And we should say that in too many Reformed churches, this hits a little too close to home. I say that because in this context, Christ quickly becomes no longer a substitute for sinners slain, but Christ quickly becomes a frog to be dissected and debated. Rather than the good news being a message of how God is reconciled to sinners through the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, now the good news is actually something that we use to promote how smart, how sanctified, how far we've come. It's ugly. Another charlatan is the traditional family gospel. Here, many are duped into thinking that the gospel is really all about family values. And so we plant our flag on the nuclear family, homeschooling, limited government, and manners. Think little house on the prairie. But of course... Hardworking dads and homemaker wives and obedient children still die and still go to hell if they are not robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In the end, Democrats and Republicans both perish apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. Another danger is the assumed gospel. In this situation, and this is ubiquitous, by the way, the gospel is simply taken for granted. It's in the background. It's sort of in the periphery. It's like a a magnificent cathedral that towers high up into the heavens. Well, the gospel is the foundation, the part that is holding up that magnificent building. But it's the same part that doesn't get any recognition. What this looks like is you have sermons that are utterly Christless. This is what the assumed gospel looks like. It means you have a bunch of people gather at a building that's called a church, that has a cross out front, that plays music from K Love, and someone stands up and talks about religious things, but basically it's a TED talk aimed at cajoling you to be a better version of you. That is not the gospel. There's also the ugly, radical gospel. In this version, Christians are called upon to basically be super Christians. So, you must sell all of your stuff, do mission work in Papua New Guinea, read your Bible straight through every month, pray three hours a day, and learn Greek and Hebrew. And if you don't do that, you're probably just phoning it in, and chances are you're not a Christian anyway. Finally, I'll mention the therapeutic gospel. Here, it's as if Christ wears a cardigan and asks you to lie down on his couch and to tell him all of your problems. This takes many shapes and forms, but at the end of the day, it is really all about you and your personal fulfillment. Christ exists, it would seem, so that you could be a better you have happier thoughts, increase your self-esteem, and really, Christ exists to teach you that you need to learn to love yourself. Or, girl, wash your face. The church here is the problem with all of these modern-day pseudo-gospels. They are woefully shallow. Woefully shallow. They have all the depth of a pothole, while the true gospel is as deep as the ocean. They are woefully shallow and inadequate, because the true gospel is about sin. The true gospel is about blood and death. The true gospel is about God's holiness, your vileness, and Christ's greatness. The gospel centers on atonement. It's about regeneration and restoration and repentance and resurrection and reconciliation. In the solar system of the gospel, Christ is the sun that everything revolves around and you and I are like Pluto. We've been downgraded. The gospel is all about the God-man who has come from heaven to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's about you and I actually finding our greatest joy, not in ourself and not in our sin, but in our Savior. That, incidentally enough, is one of the evidences of truly being born again. You actually delight in Jesus and not your sin. The hinge upon which the door of the gospel turns is Christ. It's His merit-earning life. His sin-slaying death. His life-giving resurrection. His glory-assured intercession. And every one of these so-called gospels, these pseudo-gospels, they are light. They are absent, really, on those essentials. Which means... They're not Gospels at all. Now, speaking of modern-day pseudo-Gospels, I can't help but mention the Presbyterian minister, Donald Gray Barnhouse. Nearly a century ago now, he asked a provocative question on his radio program. The question was this. What would things look like if Satan took control of a city? And his answer, I think, is more provocative than the question. This is how Barnhouse mused. He said, If Satan took over Philadelphia, that's where Barnhouse resided and and ministered there at the Presbyterian, was it 10th Presbyterian Church? If Satan took over Philadelphia, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing, The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches barnhouse said would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. A.W. Pink, a Reformed Baptist who was actually a contemporary of Barnhouse, he got at this same thing in his own way. He suggested the gospel of Satan is not a system of revolutionary principles, nor yet a program of anarchy. It does not promote strife and war, but aims at peace and unity. It seeks not to set the mother against her daughter, nor the father against his son, but fosters the fraternal spirit whereby the human race is regarded as one great brotherhood. Pink presses on. It does not seek to drag down the natural man, but to improve and uplift him. It advocates education and cultivation and appeals to the best that is within us. It aims to make this world such a comfortable and congenial habitat that Christ's absence from it will not be felt and God will not be needed. Not content. Pink continues. It endeavors to occupy man so much with this world that he has no time or inclination to think of the world to come. It propagates the principles of self-sacrifice, charity, and benevolence, and teaches us to live for the good of others and to be kind to all. Now, Pink's a Baptist, so he's long-winded. But finally, he goes for the jugular. He says it appeals strongly to the carnal mind and is popular with the masses. Why? Because it ignores the solemn facts that by nature man is a fallen creature alienated from the life of God and dead in his trespasses and sins and that his only hope lies in being born again. Now, Whether you agree with Barnhouse or Pink and their speculations, that's not the point. What the point is, is I hope that we can feel something of the pinch. The point is, the gospel is shelved for all manner of counterfeits. And to make matters worse, in each and every instance, the gospel is not just set aside, but it is distorted and twisted just as it was in Galatia. But rather than the gospel be distorted, church, it must be declared. The true gospel must be preached and believed and loved and sang and prayed and shared and guarded and preserved and treasured. And if you were to ask why, Galatians 1 would answer this way, there is no other gospel. Which is why Paul shouts from the rooftop, Beware! Isn't that really the thrust of verses 8 and 9? Paul cries out, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Are you picking up what he's putting down? If anything or anyone comes to you with a different gospel, then do not, Christian, put up with it. Don't even give it your ear. It doesn't matter if it is an angel, even if it is the angel Moroni. It doesn't matter if it is a so-called apostle, like those from Hungry Jen. It doesn't even matter if Jesus supposedly appears to you at the foot of your bed this evening. If it deviates from the gospel revealed to us in the Word of God, then it is no gospel at all, and it comes straight from the pit of hell. That is Paul's point. So then what we ought to do, church is very soberly weigh this admonition against all the cults and false religions that plague us even today. Do they not all have their roots in specifically what Paul warns against here? They all, and I mean each and every one of them, they all find their origin with some angelic vision or visitation. With some new message from some new apostle or new prophet. And what they all have in common is that they distort the true gospel of Christ. They all do this. Every single one of them. They all mess with the basic foundations of biblical Christianity. And then when you or other Christian apologists point this out, what is their response? Well, we had this vision. Or we have this prophet. Or we have this apostle. Or we have this experience. Or we have this burning in our bosom. And it just goes on and on and on. It is a distorting of the gospel. And so, brothers and sisters, I would warn you today, even as Paul warned the churches then, redeeming grace, you must beware. Do not be so sophisticated to think that spiritual warfare is not a real thing. Spiritual warfare is real and demons are real and Satan is real and false religion is real in the sense that it really does drag you away from the true Christ. Just as I don't suspect, if you walked out of this building this afternoon and there was a 30-foot python hanging out in the parking lot, just as I don't imagine that you would cozy up to that thing, so, likewise, you ought not to cozy up to these pseudo gospels. They will cripple you and they will damn you. So, the warning is to not lend your ear to these damnable messages. And I would simply just add that we live in a vastly different historical situation than those in Galatia did. Because in Galatia, the only way that you could lend your ear to this is if someone knocked on your door or if you went to some building with a cross on it. Now, with the internet and podcasts and YouTube and audiobook. We have got to be a people who are far more discerning than we are. We have got to be a people that are so acquainted with the truth of the gospel that we can spot these pseudo gospels. And our job is not to entertain them, not to placate them, but to put space between us and them. They are evil. They are evil. And unless you are very mature in the faith, you would do well to not dabble in these things. Do not introduce them into your home, into your family, into your mind, into your heart. As Paul says, don't put up with this stuff. Could be an angel, could be an apostle, I don't care who comes up to you. If they're saying stuff that's not found in the Bible or that's contrary to the Bible, you have no reason to give them any attention At all. That's why, honestly, you get the harsh language in verses 8 and 9. You can see how it's sort of PG-13. Because verse 8 ends, Let him be accursed. And then in verse 9, echoes. Just to make sure we're all on the same page. Again, let him be accursed. And the Greek word that is lying behind the ESV's accursed is actually the word anathema. We, We transliterate that into English, don't we? We speak of being anathematized. In the Old Testament, the the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, this word is routinely used to describe those enemies of God who were devoted to destruction. Think of Joshua going throughout the land of Canaan and anathematizing people. Here, it basically refers to the destruction and damnation of hell that awaits those who would distort the gospel. I don't mean to be unnecessarily provocative, but it would have the same flavor today if someone were to say, may God damn you. May God cause His curse to fall upon your head. That's the flavor. And that's how high the stakes are here. Now, of course, this idea of being accursed, of being anathematized, It causes the skin of many liberals and pluralists to crawl. They they are very quick to protest. How unloving are you Christians? They they balk. You you Christians are so narrow-minded. You've no doubt heard the assertion, well, that might be your truth, but that is not my truth. But as followers of Christ... Even at this point, we can stand with our chins held high, and we can do so because we have to know on the front end, it is not unloving to speak the truth of Christ. It is not unloving for a doctor to come into the waiting room and to tell you that the x-ray reveals a tumor. And if you were to balk at that doctor and say, how unloving, you'd need some other medicine. Furthermore, no one would accuse you of being narrow-minded if you happened to be walking down the sidewalk and there was a home engulfed in flames and a little one in the window crying for help and, and you wanted to rescue that one. On top of all of this, regardless of the, the, the cultural soup we are all swimming in, there is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is truth. And all truth is Christ's. He is, after all, the way and the truth and the life. This is why this is all such a big deal. This, again, is why Paul is so energized. Because the gospel is at stake. Christ's glory is at stake. There are souls in Galatia that are at stake. And in the family of the gospel, this pseudo-gospel is not just some distant cousin that is part of the family. No, it is an alien from another galaxy. And therefore, it is not invited to the family reunion. Now, in an effort to pound this nail even deeper, consider... When it comes to the false teachers in Galatia, we have no reason to believe that they held unorthodox views about the Christian life. In other words, from what we know, they had a right view of the Trinity. They affirmed Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Likewise, there is nothing that would lead us to believe... That they confess Christ as anything other than the eternal Son of God who became incarnate on our behalf, died on a cross, and rose from the dead three days later. We can also trust that they would sign on this dotted line The church is composed of the elect of God who are baptized and partake of the bread and wine. We can even assume that these were good, moral, upstanding neighbors. They never kicked their dog. They always mowed their lawn. They never played their music too loud. That wasn't enough. They were all registered Republicans. They had lots of kids. And they even homeschooled and named them a bunch of weird Old Testament names. They even relentlessly argued for the necessity of grace. Just not its sufficiency. And that is not a difference without a distinction. This is not merely theological hair-splitting. This is central. It is central to the pages of the New Testament. It was central to the Protestant Reformation. And it is central even today. And the difference between the necessity of grace and the sufficiency of grace is the difference between good news and bad news between heaven and hell, between grace and judgment. Let me flesh it out for you. The difference, beloved, between how grace is necessary and how grace is sufficient is, in a lot of ways, the dividing line. Is Christ, and by Christ I mean His gospel and His death and His grace, is it just necessary for our salvation or is it sufficient? You see, the false teachers in Galatia no doubt would affirm the necessity of grace. They'd say, we need grace. Grace is a must. You can't have salvation without grace. And it should be pointed out the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Roman Catholics and unfortunately not a few so-called evangelicals, they all affirm the necessity of grace. You know this, right? The Mormons say they believe in grace. Roman Catholics ring the bell of grace. Everybody affirms the necessity of grace but they do not believe and affirm and confess and stake their very lives on the sufficiency of grace. And that is the dividing line. Here's the distinction. When it comes to the Christian life or or your justification or your standing before God, when it comes to whether or not your sins are truly forgiven once for all, If you are actually standing right now, right in God's sight. If you were to be robed forever in the righteousness of Christ and welcomed into the presence of God. Here is the question. Is Christ just necessary for those things? Or is Christ absolutely sufficient for all of those things? You might think of a race. Does Christ merely just get us started and then pass the baton on to onto us and leave it up to us to get across that finish line? That would be the necessity of Christ. We need him to get us started. Christ is necessary. Or... Does Christ not just get us started, but also get us all the way across the finish line by throwing our spiritually dead corpse over his back and running the race for us? That would be the sufficiency of Christ. And that's the rub. That's the dividing line. Is Christ really enough, or does the whole thing come down to you and you can muck it up? In the end, is Christ and Christ alone sufficient to present you before God on the last day so that when the gavel drops, you hear righteous solely on account of Christ? Or will the determining factor be your works, your attitudes, your feelings, your experiences, your morals... What will be the determining factor? Is it Christ or is it you? You see, the true gospel is an announcement. It is news. It is the declaration of what God has done in and through Jesus Christ to redeem guilty sinners. It's the announcement that God has become a man in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is built Upon the life of Christ. Rooted in the death of Christ. And anchored to the resurrection of Christ. It's all about Him and what He has done. So the question comes down to this. Is Christ enough? Who Christ is and what He has done on your behalf. Is that enough for you to be right in God's sight? Those in Galatia would say, no. Sure. Christ is necessary, but He's not sufficient. But the true Gospel says not only is Christ necessary, but Christ is utterly sufficient. So trust in Him and Him alone. To which I trust that your heart in these moments is singing, Amen. But what now? What do we do with this gospel message that is ringing in your ears? Well, let me encourage you. First, believe the gospel. Put no confidence in your flesh. Tear up your resume. Lay down your arms and surrender to Jesus Christ. And I'm specifically talking to you here, young and old alike, who are not yet Christians. You must come to Christ. You must believe in Him. You must receive Him, and you must rest upon Him, and you must rely upon Him. You have no hope other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the Scriptures say is that today is the day of salvation. So if you are not a Christian, today God calls you to come to Christ and to live. And Christ promises that He will never, no never, turn away any who come to him, So believe the gospel. Second, preach the gospel. If you are a Christian, then you must be relentless in preaching this gospel to yourself. So that when you wake up in the morning before your feet even hit the floor... When you lay down on the bed before you close your eyes, you must preach the good news of Jesus Christ's sufficiency for your own weak and weary soul. And the reason that you have to do this, Christian, is because Christians tend toward either pride or despair. And this is depending on the day, the week, the month, the year that we've had, right? Christians are either utterly proud or they utterly despair. You know what the antidote to both of those are? Christ crucified for you. So Christian, preach to your own soul. Preach the good news of Christ. Preach that all your righteousness is found in Him. That way if you're proud, your fat head is deflated. It's got nothing to do with you. And if you are down in the dumps, you realize that God doesn't accept you based upon how good you are anyway, but upon how good Christ is. Christ is the antidote. So, preach Christ to yourself. Third, there's only four defend the gospel. By that I mean this don't lend your time, treasure, or talents to so called Christian ministries that do not have the gospel as its lifeblood. If your church preaches a soft or shallow or assumed gospel, get a new church. And then when in God's good providence you have opportunity to engage those around you with the gospel, don't get bogged down in secondary or tertiary issues. Focus on the gospel. I've been there. I've done that. There's nothing more fun than bantering back and forth with Mormon missionaries over secret underwear and caffeine. But what they need is Christ. So focus on Christ. And then fourth and finally, Live in light of the gospel. Live in light of the gospel. The Father has made you His His child. Christ has shed His blood to redeem you, and the Holy Spirit has sealed you, indwelt you, and filled you. The elect are the apple of God's eye. God has so committed Himself to you that He does not no longer relate to you as judge, but as Father. Way too many Christians live their lives walking on eggshells, thinking that God is looking for any excuse in the world to disown them. Brothers or sisters, you got in by grace and you stay in by grace. Grace. Live your life by grace. And by that I mean, live your life trusting, not just in the fact that Christ was sufficient for your justification, but that Christ is sufficient for your sanctification. Christ is just as sufficient for you the day that you were saved until the day that you die. Live your life trusting in the sufficiency of Christ. That is true for today, it is true for tomorrow, and it is true forever. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Not we might one day. You have peace now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Live in light of the grace of God of Jesus Christ our father we pray twofold this morning we pray first for those in our midst who have not yet been brought to saving faith we are asking that your spirit will have done that work or is doing that work or will do that work and then for the rest of us who have been converted we recognize we confess to you how quick we begin to live our lives not trusting in christ but trusting in ourselves God, keep us from looking in the mirror. Keep us from the navel-gazing. Bring us back every day, every moment, every evening, every morning. Christ is enough. And may our souls be satisfied in Him and in Him alone. We ask these things for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.